Welcome to the Redeemer Podcast. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit makingmuchofjesus.org. We hope you enjoy the talk and invite you to visit us next Sunday at either our 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. service. Good morning, Redeemer. My name is, is Barry Pat, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here at Redeemer. And today I get the extra bonus of uh, giving Jeff a little breather. Although I, I just know it's a little, it seems a little surreal that Ivy's getting baptized today, and so Jeff's whole family is here, and he's not preaching. Um, so, uh, I guess, <laughs> but it is. So uh, anyway, he told me that when, it, when we start talking about this, that this would be a, a preacher's choice weekend. So we're going to be taking a, a little excursion from our, from our bus trip with Solomon through the book of Ecclesiastes today. For the last few years, it's kind of been a, a kind of a practice I've sort of developed is to uh, is to pick a book or a or maybe a section of scripture and and just really st- commit an entire year to to just studying, meditating on this book, memorizing the book, and um, and this year the the book is First Peter. So uh, today I want to explore with you First Peter one one through thirteen in a message that I've. That is entitled "A Gospel Perspective on Suffering." So, if you've got a old school Bible with with real pages, you'll find First Peter kind of over here towards the end of the Bible, right after Hebrews and James. And if you happen to be using one of the Bibles on the floor in front of you, you can just turn to page one thousand fourteen. So, as we always do, I would ask that you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. First Peter one one through thirteen. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while... If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you by those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action 
And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the gift of your holy word. Thank you for this wonderful book by the Apostle Peter that is breathed out by you and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. God, so that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. Father, would you speak through me today for this purpose, for these people? May we truly behold wonderful things from your law. In your holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, so I learned a valuable lesson yesterday, <clears throat> and that is, if you're going to preach a sermon on a topic like this, be careful, because um, <laughs> God has a way of kind of maybe fact-checking you and see if you really mean it. So yesterday, yesterday was one of those days where if it could go wrong, it did. It was, it was just a crazy day, and Carol and I were already a little, we were kind of already kind of bummed because we were losing our, the best next-door neighbors in the world, and you know, the, you know, we live next door to Lawson and Caroline, and they're, praise God, they got to move into a new house, and, um, but they're leaving us. So we were already a little bummed about that, and um, things were just, every, it was just weird, and it kind of all came to a climax about 3.30 yesterday. When, as I was literally about to print the final version of my, of my manuscript for today, and I was going to print it out and then go over and start helping the flowers move, and suddenly I'm glancing down, and there were not just paragraphs, entire pages of my manuscript that somehow Google had managed to completely distort and mixed it up, and it was just a big jumble of chaos. So, you know, fortunately being the mature man of God I am, I freaked out. <laughs> I, I, I was stunned. I'm like, oh, I'm going, I'm starting to, I start hitting the, the undo button like a machine gun and nothing's changing. I go back to where you can change the revisions. Well, it even managed to jack up all of the past revisions. And I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm panicked. And then suddenly I get an answer from God because I look out my window and literally I see, looking like a very angel from God, I see uber geek Chris Green. <laughs> he was happy to come over. He was getting ready to start helping the flowers move. And so I'm like, oh, thank you, God. So, so I run downstairs and I, and I go outside and I, and I grab him and say, Chris, I said, forget the flowers. They can move their own junk. I need you. Okay, I know, not, not the best response, okay? So, so, so Chris comes in, and, and, and he comes upstairs, and he looks at my computer, and, and he starts glancing at the stuff, and he goes, wow, that's weird. <laughs> I mean, I've never seen anything like this. Of course, that wasn't exactly the response I was looking for. And then right about the time that I'm, you know, on the verge of going, start hyperventilating a little bit, then... My, uh, my lovely godly wife comes to the rescue, and she decides to pipe in by saying, you know, honey, uh, for a guy that's about to be preaching on having joy in the midst of trials, you don't seem to be very happy. 
<laughs> that didn't help either. <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> so, in case, in case there was any doubt, let, it, let the record show that I will be preaching to myself every bit as much as I am to you today. And now that I got that off my chest, we can, let's look at our word, let's, let's look at the scripture. So, man, I love this book. And, and there, is, there is so much rich theology just in this passage. I, I could preach a month of sermons from it. But my goal today is to examine the text through a lens of gospel-saturated response to suffering and look at it both in the context of the original recipients of this letter as well as how it applies to us today. So to understand the Apostle Peter's purpose in writing the letter, I want to first, real briefly, put on my, my history teacher hat to give us some historical context. We learn a lot right off the bat in verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So first question that might come to mind is, where are these places? So this map maybe turned out not quite as, maybe not quite as easy to see as you can think, but hopefully you can see up there, kind of right between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea, is this area that if you are history buffs, you know that's probably originally called Asia Minor, Today is, is the country of Turkey. So in between there, you see most of them are in red. The Pontus, you see Cappadocia, uh, Galatia's in purple, Bithynia's in purple. And what all these are is they are Roman provinces. The Roman Empire was divided into these Roman provinces. We know from Scripture we're very familiar with Judea and Samaria, which were also Roman provinces. So this, is, um, this tells us where these people lived and who the Peter is writing to. And the elect exiles of the dispersion tells us who they are. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to circle back to the elect part of that in a few minutes. But looking at exiles of the dispersion, I think really is a combination of two things. First, it probably includes some of the Jewish Christians. If you remember in Acts 8, right after the stoning of Peter, it says that the, that the Christians, because of persecution, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And I, would, I don't think it's unfair to assume that some of them sp spread out into Asia, Asia Minor as well. So it probably includes some of those. But there's also several clues in 1 Peter that indicates that he was, he was addressing Gentiles as well. So therefore, I think the consensus among most gospel scholars is that, is that exiles does not refer specifically to an ethnic or, or geographic exiles, but rather spiritual exiles who were there as followers of Christ who did not fit into the culture of the Roman Empire. And thus, they were exiles. They didn't fit. They were aliens. And this is consistent when you study the persecution of the early church because they were hated and persecuted, not because they were not native citizens. They were persecuted because their lifestyles were diametrically opposed to the Roman culture. Now, most of you probably remember from your, from your school days when you studied the Roman Empire that the Roman Empire was a polytheistic culture. They worshiped many gods, such as Jupiter and Venus and Neptune and Diana. And sacrifices were offered to the gods both as a means of acquiring favor and as a means of appeasement. So, for example, if you were looking for love, you would sacrifice to the goddess Diana or Venus. If you're going to war, you would sacrifice to the god Mars or, or Bologna. 
And since Romans considered all natural disasters as punishment from the gods, it was expected that everyone would offer sacrifices to Jupiter, who was the king of the gods, to avoid his wrath. You see, disdain for Christians stemmed from their fidelity to Christ alone and their refusal to sacrifice to Caesar or the Roman gods. So to appease the gods, the Romans determined that Christians must either be brought to honor the gods or be eradicated. One such document on the persecution of early Christians read this. It said, Corpses of the martyrs which covered the streets were shamefully mutilated, then burned, and the ashes cast into the river, lest any remnants of the enemies of true gods might desecrate the soil. Now, I say this to give context to some of the trials that these people here in Asia Minor were likely experiencing. And amidst these and other other trials, Peter, what he wanted these believers to have is a perspective that would give them not just the courage to endure the trials, but to actually rejoice and experience joy in the midst of them. Now, I think that verse 6 in this passage really serves as the thesis statement for for the whole passage. And all of the other verses tend to either support or explain Verse 6. So I want to start by examining five characteristics of trials that we see in verse 6, and I want to start at the end and work backwards. So the first attribute I would point out about trials is that they come in a wide variety. It says, in this you rejoice, so now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And the first thing I know about, we, we, we learn about trials, they come in a wide variety. There's not a single person in this room that is not experiencing some kind of trial. Some of you, it's health-related. Some, it's financial. Some, it's relational. Struggles with your marriage, struggles with your kids, struggles with, with coworkers. Some are dealing with emotional or spiritual or psychological trials. Some may be struggling with addictions. Others may be experiencing job-related trials or legal issues. Some trials may only be a few days old, and some have lasted your entire lifetime. Some trials are, are almost more than you can bear, and others may be just a mere nuisance. Some of you are dealing with a multitude of trials right now, and some maybe hardly any. You see, trials come in an infinite variety of sizes and shapes. But the constant is that like death and taxes, no one avoids experiencing trials of various kinds. And if you back up a little bit more, we see that the next thing Peter says is that you have been grieved by various trials. So in addition to being experienced by, uh, by everyone, the other thing all trials have in common is they come with some degree of grief and pain. I don't have to tell you this, do I? Now, the one thing I want us to be very clear about is that the rejoicing that Peter describes does not mean, and hear me, that believers shouldn't or won't experience grief. Trials hurt. 
they all hurt. They hurt physically. They hurt emotionally. They hurt psychologically. And they hurt in every way imaginable. Think of the trials that the exiles in our text found themselves. The persecutions they were experiencing was not the kind of religious persecution that we currently experience here in this country. And I can tell you this, ISIS isn't doing anything original. History records some of the ways that Christians in the Roman Empire suffered for their fidelity to Christ. It records that some were crucified. Peter himself was crucified upside down. Describes some that were, were covered in pitch or tar and then nailed to wooden posts and then burned as torches. You could walk down the road and see this horrific sight. Some were literally sewn up alive in animal skins and then thrown to wild animals. Some were tortured and mutilated and then, and then thrown in, well, still alive, thrown into large pots of burning tar. So Peter clearly wanted his readers to know that the, that the rejoicing that he was calling them to in no way minimized the fact that they were indeed being deeply grieved by various trials. But just as Paul encouraged believers in 1 Thessalonians 4 concerning the grief, grieving the loss of a loved one, that as Christians, they do not grieve as others who, do not, who have no hope. That's the message Peter is giving in his letter of all kinds of trials and sufferings, that you do not grieve, that grief is real, but you do not grieve as those who have no hope. And here's where we're about to hit a fork in the road. Because, you see, being grieved by various trials is universal to anyone who still has a pulse. It's the next three attributes that we will discuss that sets the believers apart. And they're the hope that I want you to leave with here today as you grieve over your trials. So backing up a little bit more, Peter says, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, like I said, everyone would agree that we are all grieved by various trials, but I'm pretty sure that not everyone would agree that they're necessary, right? I mean, we typically see trials as something that you do whatever is necessary to get rid of as quickly as possible at whatever expense is necessary. We spend our life trying to be rid of trials. We see the ideal life as one that is, that is the most pain-free and trial-free but that's not a scriptural view. What does scripture say? You see, the big question is what could possibly make trials necessary? And it's a great question. Unfortunately, the answer is right next door in verse 7. What does Peter say that, why does Peter say the trials are necessary? I want to read it first without the parenthetical for clarity. Verse 7 says, so that the tested genuineness of our faith might result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, so let's break that down. Why are trials and suffering necessary? They are needed because they reveal the genuineness of our faith. You see, our confidence in the assurance of our salvation doesn't come because we have a, have a baptism certificate or because we're a church member, or, or even because we said some rote prayer when we were a kid. 
We can be confident that we are truly followers of Christ when life squeezes us through trials and what squirts out is Christ. Now hear me clearly on this. Being faithful in trials does not, I repeat, does not earn our salvation. But it does reveal the genuineness of it. Look at the parenthetical now. You put there in the middle. What does it say? More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. And what he's saying here is that, that even the purest gold that is melted down in fire, I mean, how do you purify gold? You melt it, and then the impurities kind of come to the surface. You wipe them off, and now you've got, you've got pure gold. But he says, even the purest gold that's melted and tested in fire, eventually, like everything else, will, will perish. It tarnishes, it crumbles, it will, it, it's not permanent. But he says that a faith that is tested and purified through trials is, as verse 4 says, it is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So to put this in a historical context, we've already discussed the severity of the trials of the early Christians. But you see what history also tells us is that not all who profess to be believers embrace persecution and martyrdom. History records that there were many people who caved in and denied Christ when they were about to be thrown to wild animals or burned alive. One of the things they did to flush out Christians during this time was that, that all citizens were issued certificates as proof that they, that they sacrificed to the Roman gods. Now, some denied Christ to obtain the certificates and avoid being tortured. The response of others was to obtain the certificates through forgery or even bribery. But the bottom line is, when the heat came, their faith proved not to be genuine. I mean, Jesus clearly tells us in Matthew 7, 21, that, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see, the beauty of trials is that they, they force to the surface the true treasure of our hearts. They show what we really love. History also records that there were, there were many who, when faced with the choice of denying Christ or being tortured and murdered, they confidently chose Christ. One such saint was the well-known church leader Polycarp, who Roman authorities, they really didn't want to kill him because he was 86 years old. The Roman proconsul told him, Polycarp, have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar, reproach Christ, and I will set you free. And Polycarp famously replied, Sir, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior it is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. So why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. You see, the genuineness of Polycarp's faith was tested and it shone forth more brilliant and precious than gold 
And it resulted in praise and glory and honor when he came face to face with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, he endured as much or more suffering for his faith than probably anyone who ever lived. And yet, what did he say? I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. Why? In order that I may gain Christ. And as he neared the end of his life, he was able to confidently say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Once again, the genuineness of Paul's faith was tested and was found to be more precious than gold and resulted in praise and glory and honor when he met his Lord and Savior. But then there's other stories. I think one of the great sad stories of the New Testament is about a man named Demas, a little-known character. In Philemon, Paul refers to Demas, along with Luke and Mark, as his fellow workers. Colossians 4.14 says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So Demas was, Demas was in the inner circle of Paul. He was a peer with some, with some pretty lofty company. But when we fast forward to the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy, he tells Timothy in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, Timothy, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. You see, Demas' faith looked like a diamond, it felt like a diamond, it shined like a diamond until it was hit with a hammer and it proved to be cubic zirconia. One more thought on this. As I, as I studied this, it, it, it struck me. If being grieved by various trials really is necessary to reveal the genuineness of our faith, then wouldn't it likely change how we pray about our trials? I mean, the one time most of us are passionate about prayer is when we want God to take away our suffering, right? Why? I guess if we're honest, it's truth is it's because we love being comfortable. Now, hear me, I'm not saying that there's anything, anything wrong with praying for healing or relief from suffering. It's all over Scripture. Even Jesus himself, who, you know, on the night before his betrayal said, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But he also followed it immediately by saying, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That is the revelation of trials. Not that we welcome and enjoy trials, but that we desire the will and the glory of God more. You see, anyone can pray to God for healing and relief, but only an authentic follower of Christ can say like Paul in 2 Corinthians, when God denied his plea to remove his source of suffering by saying, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul confidently responds by saying, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. 
For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now we're starting to get a view of a gospel perspective on suffering. But we're not done yet. You see, the next attribute of trial says, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So what we learn from this is that all trials are temporary. Now what we need to be clear about is what the text means by a little while, right? Because I'm sure that there are probably some in this room who have endured a specific trial for years, if not your whole life. So does that refute the scripture? Of course not. I mean, if there's one thing that Solomon and Pastor Jeff have pounded into us over the last few weeks as we've studied Ecclesiastes is that everything, including our lives, is remarkably brief, right? All is vanity, havel, a vapor. Or as James 4 tells us, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So whether a trial lasts for a few days or our entire lives, in light of eternity, the longest trials on earth are a blink of the eye. And Scripture is clear that for believers, that trials and sufferings do not carry into eternity, right? Revelation 21.4 so wonderfully states, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Suffering ends when life ends. So the second reason we don't grieve like those who have no hope is because we can see that our trials here on earth as a blip on the timeline of eternity. Or as 1 Corinthians 4 tells us, we do not lose heart. Why? For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And that leads us to ground zero in Peter's encouragement to the Christian exiles. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you are grieved by various trials. Now, the million-dollar question on the table is, what does this refer to? And what do we rejoice? Now, fortunately, the first word after this phrase is the word though. And this is really good news because it clearly eliminates the possibility that he's calling us to rejoice in our trials. Right, I mean, no one in their right mind gets cancer and responds by breaking into a happy dance, right? doesn't happen. Several translations read, even though, meaning that we can rejoice even though or in spite of being grieved by various trials. Therefore, in this clearly refers to something that comes before. And I will submit to you that the this in verse 6 refers back to verse 3. Look at it with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused you to be born again to a living hope. In this you rejoice. This is the great thing that he wants to encourage the persecuted exiles to find hope in, and it's just as huge for us today. 
So let's break this down a little bit. There's three key words or phrases in this sense that I think are, are, are the basis for Peter's exclaiming, in this you rejoice. And since I kind of have this weird backwards thing going on today, once again, I want to go from back to the front. <laughs> no, don't, I don't, no explanation. The first question to address is what is a living hope? What is a living hope? It's kind of a weird phrase. You don't usually hear that. Now, I don't think it's a stretch to assume that a living hope probably comes from something living, right? And what is the first thing we learn about this living hope in the very next words? That this living hope comes what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, our hope is not in a dead martyr, but a living God. I am profoundly humbled and I'm eternally grateful that Jesus paid the penalty for my sins through his death on the cross. But my hope doesn't come from his dying. My hope comes from his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. We have a living hope because we have a living God. Secondly, we have a living hope because our hope is guaranteed by our great living God. You see, I can hope that the Astros win the World Series this year. Or I can, I can hope that I, that I have a healthy life until I'm 90 years old. But it, it, it's really not a hope as much as it is wishful thinking. Because you see, if my, if my hope for health, wealth, and comfort, if that's my hope, and next week I get diagnosed with terminal cancer, then my hope for all three just got dashed in a split second. But listen to me, church family. We do not have a dead hope in things that can evaporate in a moment. We have a living hope that we will, as verse 9 in our text states, obtain the outcome of our faith. And what is the outcome of our faith? The salvation of our souls. And verse 4, again, describes that hope as an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by what? By God's power, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. If our hope is that the outcome of our faith results in the salvation of our souls, then our text says that this hope is eternal, unbreakable, and it is being guarded by the very power of God through his gift of faith that he has given us. In this, in this, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So how do we get this hope? Our text clearly says... It's by being born again. Now, unfortunately, the phrase born again has become so cliche that I think it's all but lost the power of its meaning to most of us. In our culture, I think it's, sometimes it's used more as a political term to describe a certain type of voter. 
right? Synonymous with right-wing or evangelical or, you know, maybe Republican. And for a lot of people, it's, it's not used in a flattering way. A lot of people, when referring to, to born-again Christians, they, they're referring to what they would claim as weird religious nutjobs who are legalistic, judgmental, and holier-than-thou hypocrites. But I can assure you that Scripture doesn't use this, this term to, des- to describe a political preference or hypocrites. It's used to describe the utter and amazing transfer ta- transformation that occurs when people who are spiritually dead in their sins come to life through the saving work of Jesus Christ. As 2 Corinthians 5.17 puts it, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Or as Isaiah 1.18 says, Though your sins were like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. In this you rejoice. And finally, how does this happen? I believe the next phrase may be the single most important one in the whole passage. He has caused you with all my heart and by my own personal experience, I can tell you that I believe that to the degree that you believe and understand the phrase, he has caused, will determine if indeed you can rejoice in spite of being grieved by various trials. You see, I think, I think many people in Christianity functionally replace the word caused. I think some replace it with he has invited. According to his great mercy, he has invited you to be born again to a living hope. Now, the first problem with this is it's not what it says. And secondly, I believe in this. I don't believe will ever lead to anyone having unspeakable joy and filled with glory in spite of being grieved by various trials. To paraphrase, I want to paraphrase an illustration that I once heard by John Piper. Imagine you're at a beach and suddenly you get caught by an undertow and you start to struggle to stay above water. But in the midst of your struggle, you see Jesus in a boat about 100 yards away and, and he calls you and says, hey, swim to me. You're welcome to get in my boat. It's safe here. Just keep your eyes focused on me and, and, and swim this way. Now, if you accept his invitation or are able to swim to the boat and are saved, you would certainly thank him. You'd be grateful. But it probably wouldn't change your life because in reality, you did all the work. You see, that's how many people view salvation. Jesus invites us, but it is really our virtue and our good works that save us. If they were to enter to heaven and God would say, hey, why, why should you receive eternal life when there's, there's many who will receive eternal punishment? And the response would likely be to pull out your, your moral resume and, and then start listing all the great and decent things that you did in your life. The problem, of course, is it's not consistent with Scripture, which clearly says in Romans 12, 4, that all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even 
one. So if all Jesus does is invite us to be saved, as long as we can meet certain moral prerequisites, then Scripture is clear that heaven would be completely void of humans. Another word I think that sometimes people functionally replace with caused is helped. He has helped us to be born again to a living hope. In our beach illustration, this would look like you're in danger of drowning and Jesus again is in a boat 100 yards away, but this time he calls out to you and he throws a ring buoy out to you. And he tells you, hey, swim to the ring buoy and then hang on as you swim to the boat and you'll be saved. Now your gratitude this time will likely be more than it was in the first illustration because he did more than just invite you. He actually threw something out to you. But the reality is you still did most of the work. You did the swimming. And this is probably the most common way that people view salvation. It's sort of a partnership between us and God. It's an alchemy that occurs when you, when you take the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf and combine it with our good works and virtue, and the result is the salvation of our souls. But again, that's not consistent with the gospel. Because Romans 3 says that not only does no one do good, but no one seeks for God. Or as Romans 1 says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So to apply this to an illustration, that means that even if God did throw out a buoy and called on us to grab it, we would all say, no thanks, I got this. And then we would promptly proceed to our watery death. Thank God it doesn't say that he invited us or he helped us to become born again to a living hope. It says he caused us. The way I believe Scripture would apply this to our beach illustration is that we're in the ocean. We start to drown. Jesus is in the boat. He throws us the buoy, but we wave him off and then promptly sink to our death. And after we are as dead as a doornail and rotting on the bottom of the ocean floor at our own rejection, Jesus at some point says, it's time. And he jumps out of his boat. He swims down to our lifeless, decaying body at the bottom of the ocean. And he carries it to the surface and he breathes life back into our lungs and he restarts our heart and restores our rotting flesh like new. Now, needless to say, your response to Jesus in this scenario will be dramatically different than in the ones where you were invited or helped. The others may result in sincere gratitude, but I have to think the last one would almost certainly produce stunned awe and worship. Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. This is what causes Peter to exclaim in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. This is the hope that he wants to encourage the persecuted church with in verse 1 and 2. He's saying, church, remember, remember who you are. You're not just exiles. You are elect exiles. You are where you are and who you are because of the foreknowledge of God the Father. And if he is using the trials to sanctify you through, sanctify you through the Holy Spirit so that one glad day you will gladly stand before your Savior in praise and glory and honor, having, out, having obtained the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In this, you rejoice. Though you do not now see him, you love him. And you rejoice with joy that is, that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Verse 10 goes on to say that you, what you're experiencing is what the prophets searched and inquired to know for ages. It says a little later that even the angels long to see this. And this rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And finally, after giving them all of these wonderful reasons to rejoice in the midst of their trials, what is his call to action to them? Verse 13, therefore, in other words, given what you now know, here is what I want you to do. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, church, don't focus on the momentary trials. Focus on the, all of your attention, fully on the amazing gifts of grace that you have been given and the promise of eternity. Man, there is no trial on earth that can touch your joy or your faith. So in closing, I want to bring this close to home. I've given you examples of what gospel-saturated suffering looked like in the early church. And now I want to finish with a beautiful example of what it looks like right here in our own church family. Watch this video. sophomore in college. It was January of 2002. I um, started to get headaches and um, I'd always, you know, been healthy. I, I just didn't, I didn't know what a chronic illness was. I was really healthy and had tons of energy. I was working and I, this lady that I worked with one day, she's like, I went and asked her for some Tylenol and she said, Kelly, do you realize that you've asked me for Tylenol every day this week? 
And I was like, oh. She's like, you're having headaches every day? And I was like, ah. Yeah, I have had a headache every day this week. And she's like, you may want to go to the doctor. And I was like, huh. It was just kind of that moment where I realized I am having headaches every day. And then from there, it just was like a crazy downward spiral of um, had headaches. Then the headaches didn't go away. They just stayed all day long. And, and they changed in how bad they were. And then I started to have pain in my muscles, pain in my joints. Um, I started problems with my hormones. The symptoms weren't staying the same. It was spreading. Um, and my symptom list is it's ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> there's probably literally like hundreds of things wrong, you know. And I think that, I think some of some of the way of coping with it is just that through the years, it was kind of like. I'm either going to be a miserable, sick person who makes everybody around me feel miserable and feel sorry for me, feel bad for me. I'm in horrible pain. Or I can say, God, give me grace. Give me strength. Give me love for the people I'm around so I can think about them more than I'm thinking about, you know, the knife in my head. I mean, it's a horrible disease. Like my body is, is really falling apart in so many ways. It's not working the way that God originally made it to work. So how could I look at that and say, there's anything good about the disease itself? Or I love my migraines. So that's, that's insanity. That isn't Christianity. I mean, but to despise, but, but to despise the very things that are bringing you closer to your savior is also really insane. <laughs> I just, I can't despise that. You know, I can truly say that with my body, I don't have fears about what's gonna happen to my body. And it's just like, I know that the Lord's got me. You know, if I never walk again normally, it just, those things seem so, they really seem so small to me because I'm in the middle of a, a true miracle, you know, of having joy. And I even like my life. Like, I don't even just have joy. Like, I'm actually kind of happy. <laughs> and that's a gift too, you know? I mean, I have, I have hard days and times where I've, you know, fallen down in the middle of the house and cried on the floor. I mean, this, it's, it's not like that doesn't touch me. I'm not talking about some weird, you know, being transferred out of your life. And the life is still hard. It's very hard. You want to have hope um, that you will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, you know. But I can tell you that I have seen that, you know. And it may not be the way that I would prefer, you know. It would be nice to be well. And I may be well like I'm not in no way do I think that this is like a permanent thing just because it's happening right now and I, when I look at my life I'm like we're coming up on 14 years 14 years is a good chunk of my life because I'm still fairly young but that's, that's 14 years you know if it is preparing me 
and refining me and I don't know if I would say that I thought that before my illness but I can definitely say that it has been good for me it's been good for me you know it has hurt me physically it has not hurt me spiritually So as we enter a time of communion, I would ask the musicians, communion attendants to come forward. Let me first talk to you those, to those of you here today who maybe a scripture would say you do grieve like those who have no hope. The trials of life are crushing you. There's no relief in sight. There's no purpose for your suffering and no hope of anything beyond the suffering except eternal death. You can't even comprehend the joy and the peace that you just saw in Kelly Tadero. This communion we're about to take has really no meaning for you. But I'm here to tell you that there, that the joy and the hope that I talked about today can be yours. And if you are feeling a desire to experience the joy that I talked about, then it could be the sign that today is the day that Jesus is lifting your dead soul from the grave of your sins, and he's causing you to be born again to a living hope. If you would like to explore this more, I would encourage you to talk to myself or Pastor Jeff or one of the other elders who will be right up here at the end of the service. And for the believers in here, I have two questions. First, what are the trials in life revealing about your faith? Is it revealing a faith more precious than gold? Or like Demas, a love for this present life? Second, are you living like a, an elect exile right here in Houston, Texas? Are you offended and outraged that the culture and the laws are starting to infringe on your religious liberty? Or do you accept that this is not your home? We are aliens. We are exiles. Are you dismayed that many in the culture now have the, the attitude that they now have towards any Christian that believes that Jesus is the only way to salvation and the Bible, this Bible is the inerrant word of God? Does it bother you that believing this means that you will be labeled as intolerant, closed-minded, and a hate monger? Or do you accept, as 2 Timothy 3.12 says, that indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted? When your faith is tested by trials for genuineness, will you fold like Demas or will you respond like we read the apostles did in Acts 6.41? where after being beaten for sharing the gospel, it says that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. You see, church, the reason we have communion every week here is because every week we need, we need to be reminded through the visual of the bread and the cup that according to his great mercy, he has caused me and you 
to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in this, in this we can rejoice. The well on this side of eternity, we will be grieved by various trials. Pray with me.